Hey everyone, you're back on the Virtually Agile podcast, the pod that hears from established thought leaders as well as newer voices. Thank you to each and every one of you that tunes in every week to listen, learn, and grow. Today, I welcome a karaoke buddy of mine, the CEO of ProKanban.org, an expert in flow metrics and predictability. We share our thoughts on the state of the agile market as well as a few of our failures. Don't forget to follow or subscribe to receive these episodes as if by witchcraft directly to you as they go live. Enjoy the show. Good morning, good evening, and good night. Can you just tell I've watched The Truman Show recently? Wherever you're listening from, you're back with the Virtually Agile podcast. I'm Chris Stone, the Continuous Improvement Coach. Today's guest is another person I've karaokeed with. It's becoming a thing, folks. The CEO of ProKanban.org, a fellow speaker and author of the Kanban Pocket Guide. Welcome, Colleen. Thanks for having me, Chris. Pleasure. How's Colorado today? Cold, snowy. I mean, it's the day after Halloween in the U.S., so everybody is a little tired and um, maybe a little hungover. Kids, kids were up too late, had too much sugar, but we all had a good time. That's the important thing. So for our listeners that aren't familiar with you, Colleen, tell us about you. What makes you tick? Well, I am the CEO of ProConban, and um, I've been a entrepreneur in the past. I'm one of the co-founders of Scatterspoke. And Scatterspoke is a tool for continuous improvement that marries up qualitative feedback from the teams with quantitative feedback from the tools that the teams are using to provide insights and opportunities for improvement. And I'm a coach. So, you know, I think all of those things sound great on paper, but we also have to get out and understand what it means to get our hands dirty and work with teams. So I love coaching at the team program and portfolio level, typically bringing Kanban either into teams that are using Scrum or helping apply Kanban from the portfolio level through design, design, discovery, delivery of, of larger pieces of work. I love your pronunciation of Kanban. It's kind of calm to it, Kanban. I always think Kanban <laughs> in my head, but I think I might try and pivot to your way of doing it. It doesn't work well if you're trying to use talk to text. It'll spell it C-O-N, like a con artist. Conban. So there's, the, there's the downside. There we go. Hadn't thought of that. One of the hottest topics at the moment, Colleen, is the state of Agile. The job market for Agile folks is it's a bit rough out there. There's data suggesting that companies, they still want Agile skills, but not necessarily the certain roles like Agile coaching. What's your take? What have you seen? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're all seeing the same thing around that right now. And a lot of layoffs right now are taking place where I think that the agile roles are really considered a nice to have uh, nice to have thing for the teams, but not a necessity. So we're seeing a lot of organizations that are just cutting the entire agile team. We saw it at Capital One. Um, we're starting to see it more with and even in healthcare and insurance industries. And, you know, I think it makes sense. I know that's not a like... I know that's probably an unpopular opinion and it not where any of us want to be after being in this industry for some time. But I think it's really hard to prove value as a scrum master. And and for a lot of us in the industry, it's it's something that I feel like is probably like, I don't know, I feel like it's been coming, right? It's been coming for a while. I think maybe we grew too fast and and we added a lot of overhead in terms of you know, mandating certain 
things and from an agile perspective at the team level that uh, weren't providing value for the teams or or weren't we weren't able to show that the teams were actually getting better. You know, I think there's that that conversation we have a lot in agile of should we be working ourselves out of a job? And I I think yes, we always should be, right? We should come in, we should help a team improve, we should give them the tools so that they can do that without us there and then we should move on. And I don't think that's the way that the industry got set up basically is is it was a, you know, a full-time role forever to be a scrum master or a full-time role forever to be a coach. And so surprised organizations are are cutting those positions right now. What's your take on it? I'm completely with you. And I like I don't want to just agree with you, but I do really agree with you on this point because for me it's a fundamental value of my own to make myself redundant. I talk about it all the time. To yeah. me, the fact that people need less agile coaches is a measure of success. We've moved in the right, right direction. We've begun to build in the skills into these companies so they no longer rely upon people like us to help. And that's a measure of progress. Now, I think another thing that's, that plays in here is that, especially in tech, you know, we've been doing agile for a long time. It's kind of become the baseline. It's the norm. It's accepted now, or it's expected, not necessarily accepted. And therefore, naturally, if you think of an adoption curve, we've hit the point where the majority of companies are already doing this. So there should be less need for, for skills like this, especially if those skills are already built into the teams. You know, I always say continuous improvement is a team sport. It's not just one person to, to do. So therefore, when I'm working with teams, companies, you know, portfolios, however level I'm working at, the aim is always to leave them in a better state than I started, to equip them with the skills, the tools, the techniques, the approaches, to be able to do all of that themselves and then get the fuck out of there. Like I work to okay. escape the contract, not remain part of the furniture forever. Yeah. And I think, you know, a lot of what we've set up too, in terms of servant, you know, the, the concept of servant leadership, I often refer to it as being like feeling like the team mom. We create a dependency on that role for the team to basically look to that person to do things for them instead of teach them how to do those things themselves. Right. And I think, you know, obviously, I think as we start to look more at continuous flow and Kanban practices, I think there's an opportunity for a lot of us in the industry to start to look at simple metrics and like things like flow metrics as a way to say, I'm going to teach this team how to use these metrics to to track how their how their work is moving in, in flight. So looking at things like WIP and work item age. And then starting to look at that same set of metrics to identify those opportunities for improvement. And then, and then, like you said, get the fuck out. <laughs> like, give them those tools, teach them the, you know, teach them how to identify the opportunities and then move on to the next team or the next organization that needs that help. And I think, you know, it's really a more lean approach to what we do. Absolutely. So, what would your advice be to anyone out there who's struggling? with the state of the market right now, maybe looking for work. Any tips for those people? If, you know, I think looking more at data is going to be where all of these industries are headed, right? And so it, I think it's a language that's largely absent for a lot of scrum masters and coaches. We talk a lot about feelings and people and not to say that that stuff's not important, but if we're trying to prove our value in an organization, we have to be able to quantify that. And, and I think that's what's been missing for a long time. And so being able to show, like you said, I'm helping this team improve. I can quantify 
that this team is getting better at what they do through the practices that I'm bringing to them um, is going to be an important part of uh, showing that value and then being able to go do that somewhere else, whether it's inside the same organization. Or... And so I think getting familiar with how to do that is going to be the first step. I'm obviously a little biased here. <laughs> so I think, but looking at, you know, the flow metrics are a simple place to start. There's only four. You can gather that data now. You can gather that data. You know, if you're joining a team, it's metrics that are probably already being captured behind the scenes and whatever tools they're using. And so you, it's not like you have to go collect a baseline or start from scratch to gather data. It's all there already. And so I think it's a, it's a very simple place to start. And I think it's a good place for a lot of scrum masters and agile coaches to start as well. So being aware of the data, but in, and I'm not just talking about you know, how people are feeling, because that's kind of intangible, that's hard to measure and gauge. And being aware of the data that actually translates to something meaningful, i.e. we have gotten better at delivering stuff. We've gotten greater quality. We've got less things just stuck there because things stuck there aren't adding value. And ensuring that's translated in language that, that people who make the hiring decisions can understand. I think there's a fundamental failure of, if you want to call it an industry, agile coaching, agile as a profession, even those that train, because what we do is we go out there and we train people how to execute a framework or how to teach others what a framework is. But we then don't teach them how to go out and articulate their value. This is the value I brought a company. This is why you need me or people like me. This is how I tell the story of the great results of this team. I don't think it's about taking credit, but it's just being aware of the value you bring and being able to share that story. I think if people were able to do that better, there would probably be less situations of mass redundancies, mass layoffs of these types of roles. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think, you know, I see, I see this a lot in, at least in the Kanban space where people are asking for case studies. And I know it's, Kind of a sensitive thing. A lot of organizations won't participate in case studies because they don't want their, you know, they from a market from a market perspective, they don't want to share any of their secrets or they don't feel like they can disclose certain ways about how they do work. But I think those stories are really important, right? We learn from those stories. We learn more from the stories of other people doing these things and the way that they failed, where they struggled, where they succeeded than we're ever going to learn in a classroom. And so I'm always out there, you know, we doing things like this, right? Podcasts and interviews and talking to the people that have done the work, I think is a great way for us to continue to share stories that are real, that get us, I guess, closer to what it looks like to implement, implement change in an organization instead of just teaching it. True, true story. You speak of failure. I'm a huge believer in this. Destigmatizing failure, sharing your fuck ups. Because do you know what? We're all human. We all do it. We just don't talk about it because we're afraid of the consequences. And I think by, by sharing our failures openly, we destigmatize them. We make others feel more comfortable sharing those because those failures, that's a huge source of data, a huge source of learning that others could benefit from. It could help you as an individual or as a team or as a company avoid wasting a lot of time on the wrong thing or you know, failing and struggling building something because another team may have learned that exact same lesson. We just don't talk about it because we want to protect psychological safety and Vegas rules and all that sort of thing. So I'm a big fan of sharing failures. So I tell you what, why don't we share one of our own each? I'm, I'm happy to go first, Colleen. Are you up for that? Sure. Yeah, yeah, let's do it. 
the most recent one this is really hot for me at the moment i told you about this just before we we started recording i was flagged for breaking code of conduct at a conference okay and i'm willing to learn i made a mistake i'm human we all do i used language that was perhaps a little too flagrant for some and i don't do so with any intent to harm that's the important thing so it happens it, it doesn't it won't stop me being me but i'm willing to learn i'm willing to avoid being a dick that's the the language i always often think about don't be a dick to anyone else but yeah i i did that i made a mistake and i own it and i want to be better so how about you what have you got mine's a couple years old but and and rooted in kind of what we were talking about on the qualitative side of coaching but there was an organization I was working with that was really trying hard to hit a fixed deadline where basically the money was going to run out. And so they were, you know, this project had been in flight for a long time and they were saying, help us use forecasting, probabilistic forecasting tools and Monte Carlo simulations to understand what our runway looks like. And so I introduced the concepts of the Monte Carlo sim simulation to the leadership teams and started working with them with the data to say, here's how much work we have left. Here's the pace we've been delivering at. Here's what would be true for, you know, for where we're going to land, basically, around runway left and the dates, the hard dates that we have to hit. And leadership there took that information and basically said, okay, well, what if we increase our throughput to one story per developer per day? What does that do in the Monte Carlo simulation? And then said, okay, great, thanks. Now that's the mandate is that every developer has to complete one story a day. So I was like, oh, shit, that's not how this is supposed to work, <laughs> right? And that's not, there's a ton of unintended consequences, maybe intended in this example, but right, like quality goes down, morale goes down, the way stories were getting carved up and written were garbage because it was like, well, I'm basically going to size the amount of work to the work that I can get done in, in an eight-hour day so I can close this ticket and meet my quota. So really, it just felt like an epic fail, and I could not get them to understand, like, I guess how they had really bastardized the process and the approach to using past data to be able to forecast accurately. They almost used, used it all as a way to weaponize how much output they expected from the developers. So I didn't end up staying with this organization very long after that. I can't report back what if that helped them meet their date or actually save their runway, but it, it felt like a big failure, right? Because it was like, I felt like I brought in tools that got really used against the teams. Did you feel like a dick for introducing that? Yeah, I mean, absolutely, right? And I'm sure the teams were like, but Colleen, right? This is, <laughs> what did she do here? Because, you know, they weren't happy either. I don't think any of them felt like, obviously, it wasn't realistic. It didn't match up with what the past data looked like in terms of the throughput the teams had. And it incentivized a lot of individual heroics, right? And so instead of saying this team is working together to deliver this much work every sprint or every quarter, whatever your time box is there, it started almost pitting all the developers against each other to try to meet that individual quota of work. I mean, so many things wrong with that, right? So many things wrong with that approach that, that came from that. But it just, it really felt like I was like, Okay, well, like, how do I how do we back this out, right? Because they took the the thinking and the tooling around um, throughput and and really took the wrong next steps. I would say <laughs> felt like a big failure. I guess the important thing is how might you have approached that differently? If you were to face that same scenario again, what would you do to avoid that happening? I would meet. You know, I think 
I think there's a lot of learning in putting some of these tools in front of leaders, right? And and talking about how we can forecast in a different way and we can use past data to forecast. Um, I probably wouldn't show them what will what will happen if our throughput goes up because I think that gives the next question is obviously then make it go up. You know, I, so there's some learning there for me and not even entertaining that side of the conversation. But I think there's also, you know, Getting people out at that level of the company out of the weeds of thinking about throughput as a means for, you don't know, carrying a bigger stick, basically, or, you know, requiring this output from everybody. We want to think about everything as a system and how do we improve this the way the system is delivering value? Because in that case, like I said, there's all these things that that decision drives that hurt the ability to deliver value effectively. And, you know, you hear all these stories all the time of like the Wells Fargo one, right, of the accounts getting opened in other people's names because they incentivized um, that they incentivized that for their employees. And it's like you have to think about that side of things when you're setting certain goals for a team. But I would probably not even entertain that conversation if I were if I had the opportunity to do it over. You've reminded me of a, a great quote from Spider-Man. With great power comes great responsibility. And obviously that that tool, that data can have huge consequences on the system if misused. So perhaps some, I guess, some awareness when introducing that of this, this is what could happen if you introduce this. And are those consequences something that you're happy with? And if so, are you willing to stand up to that when it inevitably you know, results in behavior that we don't want to see? When it, when I, would you be happy with the scenario that, yes, you you start to say one story per day per developer means that those stories become less valuable, L- lower quality? Is that something you're happy with? Because that could happen. Yeah. Yeah. And then shifting that conversation, right? I mean, being able to go back and say, you know, let's talk about, let's let's look at what that's doing to what we're actually delivering. I think would be an interesting reflection for an organization that's that's mandating things like that so that you could go back and say, like you said, Chris, let's take a look at what we've actually delivered since it, with since this mandate's come down to see are we getting are we getting anything actually out that's usable and that is the value that we would expect to deliver as an organization or are we just closing stories every day to meet this quota? Because I see that too, you know, I see that in um, a lot of large scale transformations, right? There's this probably one of the term like things I hate hearing the most from any agile team is, well, we have to get credit, right? So how do like how do we get credit for the work we did in this sprint if the story is not completed? And so you start to see patterns like, oh, well, we'll close three three of the five points and carry two of the points into the next sprint. And it's like this isn't a like no. We're not trying to get credit for anything. The only thing we get credit for is when something is in the customer's hands, right? And so we've got all these mechanisms in place that I think it feels like you have to be able to show, like, this is our velocity from the last sprint, but maybe it's low because we didn't deliver that value. So we want now we want credit here for the things that we were like, we're still working. And so you have to like, there's all these patterns, right, where we almost incentivize that kind of behavior and then breaks down the value of a user story construct. It breaks down the story of trying to understand the complexity and the point value. And we've done some of those things, I think, to ourselves. And the worst bit is, 
doesn't matter if you deliver 100 story points if not a single one of them adds value or is useful or wanted by the customer. It's just it's just efficiently building the wrong thing, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. Building, delivering the wrong thing faster. <laughs> and there, there is learning in that, I think, as an organization, right? You can, you know, my colleague Pratik Singh at, at ProKanban says, you want to find out you're wrong as fast as possible, right? And so if we're delivering value quickly and it's not what's valuable to the customer, we want to be able to validate that. And I think, you know, there's a whole argument around what things could you do earlier in your process to try to validate things like product discovery practices and running experiments. Those aren't 100% proof, though, that you're, you know, the market is the only thing that's going to validate value. And so I think there's, even though we could put those steps in place, pushing things into production and pushing things to our customers is the only way we're really ever going to know if it's the right thing. Absolutely. And you hear a lot of fail fast, right, in the agile world, fail fast. And I think fundamentally people aren't ready for that language yet because failure is too stigmatized currently but just if you switch that ever slightly and say learn fast right all we want to do is learn quickly we're going to try something we want to learn quickly we're going to amplify the good things we're going to dampen the bad things and if we learn quickly and this is what agile brings about lots of short sharp feedback loops that enable that learning if we learn quickly we're going to reduce our risk our risk of building the wrong thing our risk of spending time energy money efforts and resources on something that isn't adding value. And therefore, we're going to have less waste in our system as well. Well, and risk is something, I mean, that's putting it that way. That's a language leaders talk, right? We talk about risk all the time and shifting the conversation to it being about mitigating risk and understanding the risk is often how we approach forecasting too. So from, a, you know, if we're starting to shift to more probabilistic forecasting and away from fixed date like here's how many story points we can get done by this date or here's um here's a feature with 20 stories in it here's the date we can have that done if we're shifting the way that we're communicating the forecast to include the likelihood of hitting that date you're also you're communicating risk so if i told you i'm going to forecast this feature and there's an 85 percent chance we'll deliver between november 5th and november 10th you know how much risk is associated with that forecast, right? There's a 15% risk now that we won't hit that window of time. And both of those things, what you're talking about with risk of delivery and what I'm talking about with risk of dates, we often remove from the conversation. I don't know if we're trying to protect protect stakeholders from not worrying about that part or if it's something that we're not as comfortable with as coaches. Maybe we want to be seen as like, we have the right answer, we have the perfect outcome here, whether it's value or delivery. But I think communicating is in risk helps everybody understand what they're signing up for. And then you can have more of a conversation about how to mitigate that risk. When we cut that out of the conversation, we're taking that piece of the we're taking that piece out of the conversation, like off the table too. So I'm like making the decision for you that you're comfortable with that amount of risk if I'm not bringing that in. Yeah, and there becomes a bit of a negotiation. So a, a scenario I love right. probabilistic forecasting for is when someone says, right, we need this and we need this by this date. And you can say, well, okay, if you want this, and this is the current scope size of it, you said a feature with 20 stories. If you want this and you want it by this date, well, history suggests that there's a 50% chance of that happening. So there is a 50% risk. We're going to flip a coin and it might not happen. Is that something you're happy with? Okay, no. Okay, so what can we do about that? What can we do to adjust that? Could we, is some of this less important? Could we reduce the scope of that? 
Could we change the date, perhaps? What would happen then? Could we, last case scenario, could we have more people involved? Because we know throwing more people out doesn't necessarily make it happen faster. But there are things that you have, there are levers you can pull that you then can bring into that conversation. And as you said, it becomes about mitigating risk in a language that people understand. Yeah, and I think, you know, you know, as I mentioned at the beginning, this concept of using flow metrics to drive that conversation, I think one of the things I love so much about teaching flow metrics and talking about flow metrics is that it's data you already have. You know, I see a lot of organizations where they're going through some kind of large scale transformation effort, whether it's scaled agile or another, you know, another approach to transforming the, the way the business works. And one of the things I always see kind of tucked in somewhere in that roadmap is some kind of assessment, right? A business agility assessment or a team level agility assessment of let's baseline where we are right now, which I think is always kind of funny, right? If you're new with agile practices, which I don't think many organizations are anymore, they're usually doing some flavor of this, but it's like, if you're doing an assessment at that point, it feels like maybe too late in the process to be able to baseline, where I think if you're just using actual data around the delivery of value, then you're able to have a, a much more concrete conversation about how the team is tracking and how the team is improving. And that's data you already have. All right. So we've already delved into flow. We're on it. We may as well continue with it. How would you describe flow to someone who isn't familiar or aware of flow as a concept in the working world? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest thing about flow is thinking about removing time boxes. And I, I was just at the Agile in Africa conference and got to meet a bunch of amazing people there. And somebody asked me, what do you think is the core difference between Scrum and Kanban? And I said, well, Kanban's continuous flow and Scrum has time boxes as the boundary that you push against. And the person said, well, I think time boxes are real, a really important work piece of work in, in any way that you're working because it gives you something, it gives you a milestone, right? It gives you a goal to push against. Convince me otherwise. And I was like, oh, let's go. Okay. So here's the thing I think that's really important is that th there's still constraints from a flow perspective, but instead of the constraints being built around a time box, they're built around time itself of the individual work item. And so we talk about things like cycle time and work item age as a way for us. To, that's what we push against. And so in this conversation, the other person said, well, then is a service level expectation then a time box, right? And I said, I think it could be it could be conceived as a time box, but here's the difference. Your service level expectation is built off of cycle time. So it's based off of, again, past performance and past data rather than an arbitrary time box being set on the team. And so I think when we think about those things, then it is a continuous flow of work through a team based off the capacity of that team and the, the pace that that team is delivering value. And then you're limiting the amount of work in progress and the amount of work aging in that system. So you're getting things to customers all the time. So that's not a short answer at all. But I think when we start to think about kind of the fundamental differences in how we're working now and, and what we're trying to approach from a flow perspective, it really is that how do we deliver value all the time? Continuous delivery of value and removal of arbitrary dates, because that's what they are. You know, when when someone comes in and said, right, this team, you are going to be working in two-week sprints now, that's arbitrary because you don't yet know what their cadence is, what their pace of delivery is, what's sustainable for them. It's simply right. just these are the dates that most, most teams around the world use 
and yeah they provide some they provide some sort of constraints something to focus on we're going to try and deliver some value by x dates which you know can be a forcing function for some it can be very useful for some but it's just a very different thing from flow itself yeah what's the biggest mistake you believe companies make when it comes to predictability Good question. Okay. I think that, that I mean, I would kind of go back to time boxes in some respects here that the, that the predictability piece becomes those arbitrary deadlines, right? And I see this, I guess, a lot with companies applying scaled agile, where the deadline becomes the program increment. So maybe you have a program increment of 10 weeks or 12 weeks, right? Where that is the time box then to complete a feature, so it has to fit into that time box. And then, you know, just like we were talking about with stories earlier, you end up making decisions about the scope and value of what's in that work item based on that time box. Instead of starting from the top of, you know, what is the value that we're trying to deliver and how do we just make it as small as possible? Really, at the end of the day, if we go back to continuous flow and fail fast, even if we want to call it learn fast, right? The way to do that is to make our work items as small as possible. And that's not really like ignore the stories, right? Just put like features and epics, getting those as small as possible, I think is a great place for organizations to focus. And I think they lose sight of that with some of the structures we introduce. It makes them expand, you know, if we have a three-month window to deliver a feature, then let's fill this feature with three months worth of work instead of focusing on how do we learn as quickly as possible. Yeah, expanding to fit the time available rather than, as you said, sizing something so that you're getting some value out quick. You're learning from that and then adjusting accordingly. Yep, exactly. Beautiful. Now, we love hearing from newer voices, particularly those who maybe aren't commonly speaking at conferences like you and I. Who else do you think is doing some great work out there in the Agile world or not Agile, Agile world, Colleen, that should be heard from and perhaps I should invite to the show? I would highly recommend Julie Starling. I think you may have had her on the Virtually Agile show as well, or on the, the meetup as well. She's amazing. I just got to go to the Agile in Africa conference in Ghana and met a bunch of amazing people there that were part of the, you know, part of the lineup. Addie DK was one of the people there that was great. Louisa Mencia was on the stage with all of us. Nana Aban. So great lineup there. They're all part of a group called Akaditi. I'll send these to you because I'm sure they're harder to look up the spelling for. But, you know, I think we all there's a lot of I don't know. We my husband calls it nerd famous, but we have a lot of people in our in the agile space that really are right. We've learned a lot from them, but we tend to hear from the same people all the time. We tend to hear from all the people that we are, are that are nerd famous. So it's like, how do we raise up some of those new voices and make space for hearing from new people and I think that's really where the learning comes in. And, and back to what you said at the beginning, like where is Agile headed? What is the future of this industry right now? It's going to be in learning from new people, what's working and not working as the market shifts right now and, and making space to for us to step back and, and hear from them more. True story. I want to get the fuck out of everyone's way, way and let them share their perspectives too. And, and that's why I ask, because I want to invite awesome. more people on the show that aren't being heard from. Yeah. Where can our listeners learn more about you, Colleen? LinkedIn, you know, finding some of this, the work that we've been doing on LinkedIn is a great place to look. We've got a, a series called Kanban for Everyone, 
where we interview folks using Kanban side of software development. Uh, probably one of my favorite episodes we did last year was Kanban for non, uh, nonprofits or NGOs. That was a great conversation. This year, we've been doing Kanban, kind of the Kanban Plus series. So Kanban with Safe and Kanban with Scrum. And how can we make some of the things we do better with Kanban practices? So you can find those on YouTube. We also at, at ProKanban.org have an open Slack community. So anybody that's interested in joining Slack and having conversations about flow and flow metrics or how do I get my data out of JIRA, you can join us in Slack. So that's a great place as well. And the link to join the Slack community is on ProKanban.org. We try to make a lot of our learning resources free. So if you do find yourself unemployed right now and you want to embark on a journey of starting down, to, you know, starting to learn some more of these concepts, there's free books, free videos, and a lot of free material there where you can start to learn more about Flow and Kanban. Fantastic offer. Thank you, Colleen. And, and on that note, listeners, if there's any way I can help you also, just ask. That could be sharing your profile, putting you in contact with one of my connections. I'm always happy to do the small things that are in my power to do to help someone. So just, yeah, just ask. Alas, Colleen, our time box is running over <laughs> and I'm not sure continuous flow will fit very well in a podcast format, but you know what to do, folks. If you want to hear more and learn more from great guest speakers like Colleen or more of my sultry and seductive tones, then tickle at follow or subscribe button. And as if by magic, new episodes will appear before you. Until next time, dear listener, don't stop believing. Cheers, Colleen. Cheers. Thanks, Chris. You've just listened to another episode of the Virtually Agile podcast. Don't forget to check out www.thevirtualagilecoach.co.uk for one of the largest collections of free templates on the web on all things agile. If this show provided value, I'd love your support by following or subscribing on your platform of choice. See you folks next time.